and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And today we have a special guest, uh, Jordan. Jordan is with us this week. She is on her winter break from school, and uh, we've been trying to get her back on the podcast for a while now, and uh, we finally were able to hook up. This movie, I guess, Jordan, you didn't technically pick this movie, but this is one of the ones that you requested we do, so I figured it would be suiting for uh, us to do it when you were on the show. Um, why, why this movie? What, the movie we're doing is 2017's Get Out, by the way. I watched it a couple weeks ago in my sociology class. We had to do like a film review and then analyze it like sociologically. So I was just bored at work one night and I was like, oh, like now's a good time to do this. So I (laughs) watched. So I was just like, I'll pick any movie. I'm like, I haven't seen Get Out in a while. So I watched it at work and I was like looking at it from like a sociological lens. And originally when I watched it, I didn't think it was that scary like there Mm -hmm. were some like jump scares but then like in the grand scheme of horror it's not exactly you know saw or hostile or anything like that and but then i was analyzing it sociologically i'm like oh like this is actually kind of scary (laughs) if you really think about it and so i was like you know like todd and craig should review this and i'm really glad you guys asked me to review it with you well, we're glad you're here. It's interesting that you say that you were asked to watch it for a class because I was just reading trivia about it, and apparently that's a big thing now. You know, there are entire courses being set or being uh, taught uh, on this this movie and the issues that it addresses, which are primarily uh, racism and and white privilege and uh, cultural appropriation and all kinds of things of that nature. Um, and interestingly enough, I read that Jordan Peele, who is the writer and director of the movie, who's really you know been around in Hollywood for a long time but has been known for his comedic work. Um, he was inspired to write this during the first during Obama's first term when a lot of people were saying that uh, racism was dead uh, and it wasn't it was a thing of the past and Obviously, he didn't believe that to be true, uh, and so he was inspired to write this movie, but he was afraid that it wouldn't be well received because people would not take it seriously because they they didn't still see racism as being an issue in America. And so it wasn't until uh, late in Obama's second term when things just started to go to the shithouse <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that uh, this movie became very much appropriate again. And it was just timely in its release. And uh, that's why it did very well. I mean, it was one of the highest grossing uh, films of 2017. It was filmed on a $5 million budget. Uh, it, in the USA, it, it made $175 million. And worldwide, um, so far, it's made $250 million. So this is a hugely successful horror movie. And, you know, uh, I think rightfully so. You had seen it before. I had seen it before. Todd, this was your first time seeing it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was it, and, and that's just because I live in China. <laughs> These guys, <Right. laughs> we're pretty limited in the fare that we get here in the theaters. It's usually latest Hollywood Hollywood blockbuster that's generally very safe, you know, and even those uh, get edited a little bit for the the market over here. So, like, I didn't even go see Alien, the latest Alien movie, which I heard isn't that great anyway. It came to the theater here, and uh, I didn't even go see it because I heard that there were a couple scenes that were edited out, and the Alien was trimmed, and I don't know, they they tried to cut the violence out of it a little bit, I guess. But anyway, uh, tangent. Uh, the, yeah, no, I didn't get to see Get Out, so uh, this was my first time, and I don't know, I'm pretty jealous. Both you uh, and Jordan seem to have a pretty cool work environment where you guys are just sitting around watching movies all day. <laughs> <laughs> Not all day, Todd. Oh, no, I'm sorry, um, half the day, maybe at least sometimes. two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Craig, I remember a lot of movies in your class, so don't... Hey, come on! Throwing me under the bus, dang! I'm interested to see uh, what both of you thought of it, but I'm particularly interested to hear what Todd thought of it because when I saw it the first time, I thought it was really good. I saw it in the theater, and um, you know, it was really tense, and I was really kind of on the edge of my seat. And uh, watching it again today, I still really enjoyed it, but most of that tension was gone because I knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I- it's rewatch worthiness was kind of low for me but originally i I, I was a huge fan yeah i can see that i i have to say that you know jordan you said it wasn't that scary for me it was terrifying i was on the edge of my seat too and i don't know if i was just in the mood it was late at night but i think what really got to me about it is i could obviously not personally relate but this is such um a domestic kind of horror film and i've always felt that those are the scariest yeah it, it reminded me a lot of funny games 
in in the way that it made me feel, you know, and and, and for, yeah. I think for the same reasons, it's this very domestic situation we could all find ourselves in. It's things that normally happen to about everybody at some point or another, and it starts to get creepy in the way that you hope these situations will never get creepy. And this, as soon as you see it starting to get creepy, and you know you're watching a horror movie, you're like, oh my gosh, and, and you're just shouting the title of the film at the at the film get out dude get <laughs> right, out right. right but but it starts very innocuously with you know his visit and the comments that people are making um are very typical and i'm sure we'll get into this but they're very typical comments that uh, are made every day that you sort of cringe at but you know that the reason you're cringing is because there's something sinister beneath the surface here and i think what's terrifying about it is it brings up the possibility that there's more than just casual racism underneath these things. And I'm sure, sure, you know, that's exactly what he was going for. But to me, just because it was so everyday, um, not from my personal experience, but I know for a lot of people's experience, I have been in situations where people are treated in the way that he's treated. Um, that, right. uh, that it just, it just, I, I, I spent the whole time trying to figure out what the heck was going on. And, and that in itself, just the unknown was really spooky. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, and you say, you know, it's experiences like we've all had those kinds of uncomfortable experiences, meeting a partner's parent for the first time, those kinds of things. I can only imagine, I can't speak from experience, but I can only imagine that people of color would probably appreciate this movie even more because they probably have found themselves in uncomfortable situations that are based on, you know, racial tension and, and maybe seemingly harmless, casual racism. But, you know, as we all know, no racism is, is harmless. And um, I think that uh, that's, that's kind of what he's trying to explore here through horror, but also through some comedy too, which uh, I appreciate. Which I really appreciated because yeah. I really wanted those scenes to come. Like when it would come up, I, I got a break. I mean, I literally, this is one of those horror movies where I really appreciated the comic relief because I really needed the break from the tension. And the comic Absolutely. relief was all Rod. And Rod is such a genius character. And I remember <laughs> watching this for the first time uh, with my aunt and uncle. And th- my aunt really is not into scary movies. And my uncle is just kind of like neutral about them. But like I would look over and they would just be crying during Rod's scenes because they were it was so funny. <laughs> they are hilarious. Rod is the best friend of the, our main character who's named Chris. Uh, Chris is played by a guy who I've never heard of before, uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Rod is played by a man named Lil Rel Howery and he really is just really funny and uh, Jordan Peele the director the writer director said that he wanted to include the character of Rod because he wanted um, somebody likable and and somebody relatable uh, and and to give the viewers a little bit of respite from the tension and I, I, I yeah I mean he's one of my favorite parts of the movie and and he just kind of pops in and out um, but it's cleverly paced so that you know he's not popping in all the time with quirky remarks it's just you know every once in a while chris will give him a call on the phone and they'll have funny conversations but it's a good balance i think it is and it really uh toes a line i think uh i was worried that the character of rod uh would would almost delegitimize the movie in a way that he would be so off the wall goofy that after a little while i'd be feeling like i was watching another key and peel sketch and sure. i think that it just hit that edge without going overboard to be funny without seeming so, you know, over the top, unrealistic um, parody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the story really is pretty simple, but to establish the tone, there's this opening scene um, where you've got a black guy walking down the street at night uh, in what seems to be like a nice suburban neighborhood. And he's looking, it, it seems like he's lost. Like he's not really sure where he's going. Like he's got a destination in mind, but he can't find it. Um, and all of a sudden, very ominously, this little white car uh, drives by and makes a U-turn in the road and starts following him. And uh, he, at first, kind of tries to ignore it, but the, the car doesn't go away. So he turns around and starts walking the other way. But when he looks back over his shoulder, the car is parked and the door is open. And then all of a sudden, he's ambushed from behind by a, a figure in dark. Uh, and this this guy, we assume, is wearing a helmet, like a, a knight's helmet. And um, he uh, attacks this black man and throws him into the back um, of this stark white car. You know, there's lots of, <laughs> uh, lots of color imagery uh, going on in the movie, as well there should be. And then we get the uh, title sequence. And then we meet, we meet our main characters and during can i just say like during that scene when the guy that we later figure out is andre hayworth when he gets kidnapped Mm -hmm. 
the car, the song that's playing is Run, Rabbit, Run. Uh-huh. How sinister is that? Yeah. Like, I didn't pay attention to that until, like, the second time I saw the movie. And I'm like, ooh, like... That's really creepy. <laughs> yeah, there's really good use of music in the whole movie. And also, it's a situation, again, another one of those situations, I don't care what color you are, you can relate to this, right? How many times have right. you walked down a neighborhood and got this feeling that this that there's a car that might be following you? Yeah. And turn around, and then if that car turns around too, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm totally screwed. That is the start of, a, of many suburban nightmares. <laughs> and, sure. Uh, and that got me in the beginning. I was like, oh, this poor guy. <laughs> yeah, he said that he was inspired that scene was inspired by Halloween and how it was just kind of taking what we usually consider as being a really safe place, like, you know, a white suburban neighborhood and just showing that, you know, there's potentially peril around every corner. And it does a good job of uh, establishing that, that suspense. I mean, this is a really suspenseful movie, but then we get introduced to our main characters. Like I said, Chris uh, is the young, good looking African-American man Strangely enough, Jordan Peele had Eddie Murphy in mind for this role. What? Uh, originally. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> You've got to be kidding yeah, he, me. <laughs> he wrote it with Eddie Murphy in mind. In fact, the whole movie was inspired uh, in part by um, one of Eddie Murphy's stand-up routines where he was talking about horror movies and he didn't understand why stupid white people didn't just immediately leave mm. when things started going bad in like haunted house movies. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's funny because that was called Get Out. <laughs> right, right. He said that he told, or no, I think this is from Murphy's stand up that he said, if, if me and my wife ever go house hunting and we walk in and a ghost whispers to me to get out, I'm getting out. Like, <laughs> you're not going to have to tell me twice. But anyway, we meet Chris and, uh, we see he's got this really nice apartment and he's got these big photo prints hanging all over and we find out that he's a photographer and he's got a girlfriend, a beautiful girlfriend, Rose, played by Allison Williams from Girls and various other things. And what's happening is that they are going to her family's house to introduce him to her parents for the first time. Do they know him? Do they know I'm black? No. Yeah. Should they? It seems like something you might wanna, you know, mention. Mom and Dad, my uh, my my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend, and I just don't want you to be shocked <laughs> that he's a black man. You <laughs> <laughs> said I was the first black guy you ever dated. Yeah. So what? Yeah. So this is uncharted territory for. You know, I don't want to get chased off the lawn with a shotgun. You're not going to. First of all, my dad would have voted for Obama a third time if he could have. Like, the love is so real. You get the sense that she's kind of this doughy-eyed idealist who really believes that, oh, you know, that's not anything we need to discuss. We're progressive. That scene was such a red flag for me, though, because it's revealed later that they've been together like four months. Uh So if you've been with someone four months, usually... They're on Facebook with you and like your parents kind of know who they are. And so if your partner has like no Facebook presence with you or anything like that, then obviously like it's 2016, like something's up, you know? Yeah. 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 Is that not weird? Like if I were Chris, I'd be like, um, Rose, like you're weird. Like, are you like ashamed (laughs) of me? Like what is wrong? So shouldn't that be a red flag? Or I mean, I guess like, going into a relationship you don't expect that you're going to be like kidnapped by your partner's family <laughs> but, like, it depends you know <laughs> i would think it would be weird yeah. You know, that's funny because I hadn't thought about that at all, but it actually makes a lot of sense in the long run. When they uh, are driving to his, uh, her parents' house, they hit a deer and it, you know, it beats up the front of their, their car. And like, he's concerned because he can hear the deer um, still alive in the woods and he shows compassion and like wants to go and look at it. And th- this kind of sets up some themes too. There's a hit and run theme, you know, the, the fact that he shows compassion for this injured animal and she doesn't, all of this adds up in the end. But when the cops show up, they call the cops, I guess, and the cops show up and they take her information and then they ask, the cop asks for his ID and Rose flips out and is like, you don't need to see his ID. He wasn't driving. And the cop's like, well, you know, technically we have the right. And she's like, well, that's bullshit. Now, both times that I watched this, I thought, 
she's doing, you know, she's sticking up for him. You know, here she is, this equal justice warrior or whatever. But I was reading stuff, and uh, one of the spoilers that I read said that she wasn't sticking up for him at all. She was avoiding a paper trail. Yeah. If his name, if his name had been. Uh, listed in the report then it would have been evident that he was with her at that time and she doesn't want him to, she doesn't want people to know that because of what they plan to do and so the whole facebook thing that makes sense it would make sense that she, he wouldn't have any presence on her social media um because that would cause red flags she would have a presence on his i mean she couldn't avoid that could she i don't know i don't know you would think not yeah i don't know i mean ultimately it's all kind of implausible but it's a good story anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then they get to the house and it's always, I, it's not like I've done it a whole bunch of times. I've been with the same person for 20 years, but it's awkward when you meet the parents for the first time. And it is this time too. You know, he, he kind of takes a shortcut here though. He deals with this, this, the very first meeting in a very interesting way in that they pull up to the house and they drive by and there's a groundskeeper. And I just had to laugh at the, like the horror trope of the groundskeeper who slowly turns <laughs> toward the car as it goes to the right. house. But, um, you know, they pulls up and as they get out of the car and they go onto the porch, it actually, the camera pulls away considerably. And so when we see them meet each other, what we're mostly doing is hearing them and not seeing their expressions. And uh, it's a very normal-seeming meeting. But the way that the camera pulls out and this, this house kind of imposes over you know, the scene, it, it really gives you a very detached feeling from the very beginning. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was an interesting technique. I've never really seen this before. You would think, because this seems to be the crux of the film, right, that this meeting of between him and the parents at, at the very beginning, when, he, when they open the door and he walks up, would be a, a scene, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's treated as just background, in a way, like well, we got we got to plow through this to get to inside the house. I thought mm -hmm. that was a really interesting choice. Well, they're they're nice to him, um, but it's in that okay. Well, so first of all, the parents are played. The dad, his name is Dean, and he's played by Bradley Whitford. I love Bradley Whitford. Yeah. He's been doing I movies do since the eighties. He's a really really funny guy, but he can be he can be kind of a, a stark presence as well. And then the mom's name is Missy uh, played by Catherine Keener, also a fantastic actress. You know, it's almost surprising that he was able to get such strong people in his directorial debut, but great casting. Um, and they're welcoming, you know, they get, they kind of force him into hugs and, <laughs> but it's awkward. You know, it's probably how my dad would be if I brought home <laughs> a black guy, you know, like the dad kind of starts like jive talking a little bit. Like. Yeah. <laughs> and there's that conversation about the deer. Well, you know what I say? I say one down, a couple hundred thousand to go. Yeah. No, I don't mean to get on my high horse, but I'm telling you, I do not like the deer. I'm sick of it. They're taking over. They're like rats. They're destroying the ecosystem. I see a dead deer on the side of the road. I think to myself, that's a start. I don't even understand that. I'm, I'm just sorry. saying. You know what? I am grateful for what you've done today. I don't like them. We got that. Like, I'm an English major, so, like, I analyze everything now because I just have to. Right. <laughs> and so I was like, analyzing that. I'm like, what if, like, that is, like, a metaphor for black people? So I thought the deer conversation was this metaphor of how, like, they're taking a couple of black people at a time and, may, like, turning them, like, not necessarily white, but, like, a common talking point is, like, why can't black people just act normal and why can't they just act right, as in, like, act white? So right. they're, you know, just taking a couple and then you know, eventually they'll take on all of them or something like that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, black men were often referred to as bucks, buck in words. Um, so, yeah, I think that it, uh, it definitely is intentional. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just it. You can tell almost from the beginning that there's something sinister going on, but it really kept me on the edge of my seat because though I knew something bad was happening, I didn't really understand what it was. You know, like there's, there's these weird things going on where like, so the, the, at this house, um, they have two servants. They have Walter, who is the groundskeeper, black man, and they have Georgiana, who is like the housekeeper. And she's of course a black woman. And they just act strangely. Um, they they kind of act like black people were portrayed in movies in the 
30s, you know, like gone with the wind, mammy type stuff. I think like part of the reason why you find it weird and like, you know, like there's something sinister going on, but like you can't like pinpoint it is because we all three of us are white. So like we're watching it through a white lens. And so, you know, we see like this casual racism. It's like, oh, like, okay, like it's weird, but they don't mean anything by it. Right. And so, you know, Jordan Peele went at it with this with the lens of like a black person where casual racism, you know, we may not think anything of it, but you know, it actually is like more sinister than just like off the cuff remarks. Yeah. There's always, there's something behind it. You know, there's, there's something deep in your psyche. (laughs) It's kind of behind these remarks, right. Uh, when they come out and, and it's interesting. I mean, there's, there's a whole laundry list of them. And, And later there's a party at this house where um, other guests come. It's it's like for their grandfather or something? Her yeah, grandfather, like, every year had had the party. And so then after he died... Oh, they continued to ...died, have. quotations, they right. continued to have the party. And it's all white what? people at this party, but we get kind of... Oh, it's almost a montage for a little while of remarks being made at him that you're just cringing at, but are, again, remarks that are made all the time in my Oh, presence. right. <laughs> yeah, like... Yeah, like, uh, do you see it as an advantage or a disadvantage to be a person of color in today's world? Like, you know, you're asking <laughs> this one black guy but surrounded by all these white, old white people. Like, so tell us what it's like to be black. Like, <laughs> oh, man, yeah. it's 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 rough. But even and, and there's way more creepy stuff. I want to come back to that party. But the other huge red flag for me was the very first time that Chris and Rose and Missy and Dean all sit down together. Bean observes that Chris is fidgety. You smoke, Chris? (laughs) You doing something a little bit over there? I'm quitting. Dad, this is why I don't bring people to the house anymore. That's okay. We're not judging. It's a nasty habit, though. You should have Missy take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. She developed a method, and I'm telling you, it works like a charm. That, to me, was such a huge red flag. No, lady, you're not going to hypnotize me. (laughs) I literally met you like five minutes ago. (laughs) No, it's not going to happen. But she does anyway. And that's the other thing. Like, now, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on hypnotism, but one of the, you know, one of the things that I do know about it, because I have read some stuff about it, is that it's entirely, completely unethical to hypnotize somebody against their will or without their knowledge. Um, I mean, this isn't the most ethical situation anyway. <laughs> of course, of course. But it, you know, it speaks to her character that she would do this, which she does. Cause he goes out for a cigarette and he sees some weird things. Like um, the groundskeeper comes running at him full speed. And then right as he gets to him, he turns off and veers off and runs away. Just weird crazy stuff but then he goes in and she sits him down and she starts asking him all these personal questions um you know he's like you're not going to hypnotize me or something and basically what she gets out of him is that he thinks of hypnotism very much in the way that most of us do you know the the pendulum and you're getting very sleepy and she kind of teases him about that but then she also very casually says sometimes we do use visual cues or audio cues or something along those lines meanwhile she's very methodically stirring her tea and uh, as she continues to ask him questions, you can just tell that he's falling into hypnosis. And eventually he is fully hypnotized and she is in control of him. And it's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's really scary how that could happen, you know, whether or not it's real or not. It's an aha moment when you notice suddenly that the tea is being stirred in this very methodical, repetitive way, and that audio comes in very slowly, and then we get a shot of the tea being stirred, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is her, her cue for him that she's creating, and this is what's, what's slipping him under the spell. Again, another moment where this, I, I don't know, you know, it's presented anyway in a way that this could conceivably happen in a normal, everyday circumstance, in a place that's supposed to be safe, right? Right, right. In, in a living room. Yeah. I mean, she lulls him into kind of like she gets into his subconscious by talking about his mom and his, his mom had died and he doesn't have a father, which is also ideal for them because he's not really connected to people. But as it turns out, uh, his mother was killed in a hit and run. 
and she gets him talking about that and talking about, and I think that she plays into his feelings of guilt because he was home. He was a child, but he was home and he was expecting her. And when she didn't come home, he didn't do anything. He didn't go out and look for her uh, or anything like that. And she really kind of drives that home. Like you didn't do anything. You did nothing. Um, And so then he's fully into uh, hypnosis and uh, she says, now sink into the floor. And he does like his consciousness falls into like this nether region where he's just kind of floating in space. Uh, And it's really cool imagery because he's just in this vast emptiness, but you can see like a cutout or a box up above him, what he would be seeing through his eyes. Uh, And he's just floating there. And she says, you're now in the sunken place. At which point I think that he jolts up in bed. Uh, as though this had all been a dream. And at least for a minute, he thinks it might have been, but it becomes very clear. In fact, uh, they don't really go out of their way to hide the fact that he has been hypnotized and he's not smoking anymore. Yeah, and now isn't it, just for a moment, let's stop and think about how hypnosis is usually treated in films, right? It's usually very cheesy, very corny, and it has the ability, it's risky to use something like that in a movie like this, because I think we're naturally a little skeptical about the power. And I think that the way that he filmed it, to give you the feeling and the impression from the point of view of the hypnotized... I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. I, I, I don't think I have either, but it's haunting. It's very haunting, and it was and it really pulls you in. I mean, almost literally pulled me in as well. I, I felt that um, this was really skillfully done, the way that it drops him out of that dream through the floor, and suddenly he's falling. Everything's a little slow motion, and then what he's seeing through his eyes is from a distance, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and it's like a... Like a little movie playing in front of him, which right away sets up how we are going to be thinking about the other hypnotized people in this movie and what their reality must be like every single day. Yes, and Jordan Peele said that he uh, came up with this concept of the sunken place because he feels that many people of color or minorities or whatever often find themselves in that position where they're aware and of, of what's going on. They see the things that are going on around them, but they feel powerless to affect any change um, or to do anything about it. Uh, and as a metaphor, gosh, that's pretty pretty darn on the nose. <laughs> yeah. It, it even reminded me a little bit of The Serpent and the Rainbow. And I, got, I was really interested in this at one point when I was studying African-American religions in, in school and I was um, studying voodoo. This concept of the, you know, we've talked about this before, but the concept of the zombie has its roots in Haitian folklore, but also Haitian religion, in the fact that there really are these cases of zombieism, and it's really nothing more than tied to your belief in the fact that you can be a zombie is so strong that you literally become one. You know, you you don't die. You basically awaken, and you allow somebody else to have complete control over you, because you believe that they've made you into a zombie, and so you these people too would be in their sunken place. And I, I feel like that's really interesting con- considering that that also, you know, we're talking about a movie that deals with race and different culture and the black experience um, in America, that there are a little, some, some little nods to that as well, using hypnosis in this way to turn these people in the household into these effectively like Haitian voodoo zombies who can just go around and be servants for people, um, but not willingly. Yeah, and it's it's really creepy, and it gets even creepier when we get to that party that you had talked about. You know, all these people show up. They're all old, rich, white people arriving in black cars and wearing black clothes. I think there's something to be said there. I found um, that so odd. Like, they all just showed up at once. Like, I thought it was a little yeah. cheesy. And it was before, weird. Sinister. Before that, though, uh, Chris went out and talked to the groundskeeper, right. and that scene – is probably like one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie because it's so odd just to see him talk like that. What's up, man? You're working you good out here, huh? Nothing I don't want to be doing. Yeah. I didn't get to meet you actually up close. I'm Chris. I know who you are. She is lovely, isn't she? Rose? Yes, she is. One of a kind. Top of the line. 
A real doggone keeper. <laughs> right. Then he was like, well, I'm going to go back to minding my own business now. And that <laughs> makes me laugh so hard because it's so petty. <laughs> yeah like, like i'm going to go back to my my own business maybe you should follow my lead yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's good and he's acting weird and georgiana acts weird too um they're just it's just weird they, they're like just bizarre you stepford can't really wives kind of situation right they're just absolutely like robots steering they're speaking in ways that not just, and I thought initially when they were doing this, it, it seemed like he's trying to relate to them on an African American level and kind of relax and kind of kind of bro it up, you know, in a way yeah. with, with them. But they are absolutely speaking what we would consider, you know, they are like white, right? Um, totally. And and so they're they're speaking with this the, this kind of diction and these words that at first I'm thinking, okay, they're code switching, you know, which is a very common thing. I have a number of black friends, and I notice that they act differently around me. You know, they speak differently sure. around me than they, when they speak around their black friends. It's a linguistic phenomenon. We all do it at some yeah. level. We all speak differently uh, with our friends and code switch. And the fact that he wasn't code switching, I thought, oh, that was interesting. I wasn't sure what it meant, but it becomes clearer in retrospect, right? Oh, when right. I was watching it what the it second time, I was just like thinking to myself, like, white people don't talk like that. Like, white people <laughs> don't act like that. Exactly. And then I'm like, wait, like, White people, like, don't act like that, but at the same time, like, they totally do. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and it's not just stereotypically white, but it's also just kind of old-fashioned, like, yes. which ends up making sense. Yes. Um, but, like, at one point, he reali- he keeps realizing that his cell phone is unplugged. Like, he keeps plugging it in, and then the next time he goes back to it, it's unplugged. Um, and at some point, he confronts Rose, and he says, Georgiana's doing this. I don't know why. Maybe it's because she likes me. He all the time thinks people <laughs> <laughs> are, like down to jump his bones or something but well well, um, well in that case though he said maybe no he said maybe she's mad that you're with me that's a thing. oh right right so i don't think it was that she liked him i think it was that uh it's kind of a thing that uh african-american women can be ticked off when an african-american guy is with a white girl right but uh when she, he doesn't confront georgiana about it but she comes and apologizes it seems like she's been sent to apologize but he says something like i didn't mean to snitch and she doesn't get it and he's like, I, I didn't mean to rat you out. And she still doesn't get it. And she's like, oh, you mean tattletale? And he's like, <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so, you know, so it's just, it's just odd. You know, they're, they're, they're just not acting right. You can just tell. And then there's this party where it's so uncomfortable. At first, it doesn't seem particularly unrealistic. It's almost like, oh, look, our daughter's dating a black guy. Let's go around and show everybody how cool we are with this. Mm-hmm. Um, which sadly happens. And then all of the friends are like, oh yeah, we're totally down with black people, you know? Um, But it becomes very apparent that he's cattle, you know? Like they're parading him around in front of these people. Oh, look, it's the greens. Gordon and Emily, this is Chris. Chris, this is Gordon and Emily Green. Chris, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Chris. Nice to meet you indeed. Oh, and that's quite a grip. Thank you, you too. You you ever play golf? Mm, Once. A few years ago. It wasn't very good. Gordon was a professional golfer for years. Oh, you kidding? Well, I can't quite swing the hips like I used to, though. But uh, I do know Tiger. That's great. Super. Gordon loves Tiger. Oh, best I've ever seen, ever. Hands down. Uh, So, Chris, uh, let's see your form. Fair skin has been in favor for the past, what, couple of hundreds of years. But now the pendulum is swung back. Black is in fashion. One old woman walks up to him and, like, starts feeling him up, like feeling his arms and chest. And asks Rose if it's true that, like, black men are better in bed. <laughs> right. That was like so uncomfortable. <laughs> They're sizing him up and you feel weird and awkward about it the first time you see it the second time knowing what's going on it's so sinister and so gross like they are they're literally treating this man as a piece of meat. I mean yeah. there's there's no other way to put it. Which totally um, happens. And I mean I, I I've been in situations where my I I'm embarrassed for my friends because these kinds of things are happening to them. But to see it all piled on at one at one point in a dinner in a dinner party, I can totally believe that this would happen even when people are just coming to a party and going home and there's nothing sinister. Overtly, yeah. Exactly. Ugh. So it really does it's skillful. I mean, Jordan, you were talking about the sociological 
implications of this. I mean, this this scene is dripping with it. Oh, yes. It, Go ahead, like, Jordan. Going on with the cattle metaphor, later on at the end of the party, they have an auction. It's like a cattle auction or a slave auction. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and it's it's really creepy. It's silent, and they're just flashing these bingo cards. But and I mean, Bradley Whitford is like punching his like like the only noise you hear is when like Bradley Whit- Whitford will like punch his palm like to sit like signal like moving up in price. Uh huh. Yeah, and, it's like, gross. That was just... It's so gross, and and that all happens while they're away. Chris and Rose take a walk away because something uh, something else creepy happens at the party. Chris is excited because in the crowd he spots one black guy, and he sees him from behind. And based on the way that he he can see that he's black, obviously, um, but he's he's looking at the back of him, and he walks up to him and he says something like, "Nice to see an old brother here" or something. He thinks it's an old man. It, his posturing makes him look like, and and what he's wearing makes him look like an old man. But he turns around and he's this young guy, like mm-hmm. really young. And um, so Chris tries to talk to him, but again, it's that same thing with Georgiana and uh, Walter where he's just not acting right. Like he's acting like an old person. Uh, and it's just, and then his wife shows up and his wife's an old white lady. And like, they talk to each other like an old couple. It's just weird. And at this point, I thought somehow they're brainwashing these people. My, my thought was they're, they're using hypnosis to brainwash these people to do whatever they want to do, which is exactly the conclusion that Rod jumps to the very first time that he hears about anything going wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know that white people like to kidnap people and turn them into sex slaves, right? (laughs) (laughs) So funny. Sex slaves, I told you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. But at that point, I'm kind of thinking, I think Rod's right. You know, I think that's what they're doing. Yeah. Um, Well, that particular one, considering that he has a wife that's 30 years his senior yeah absolutely and then he goes on to say we haven't left the bedroom in months uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> ew gross uh, yeah <laughs> okay so then i feel like we deal with the whole unplugging the phone thing or something and then they come back out and all these white folks are standing around and that's when somebody asks, you know, what's it like to be black in America? And um, Chris spots the other black guy who he had talked to before, and he says, maybe you can help me out with this. Um, and the guy's like, oh, I don't know. You know, I don't get out very much anymore. And, um, <laughs> secretly, uh, or at least he's trying to do it secretly, Chris is lining up his cell phone to take a picture of this guy. And <clears throat> he does the same thing that I've done so many times and forgets to turn off the flash when you're trying to take a sneaky pick. And um, all, all these sneaky it, picks you try to take, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> so Don't go there, times, Tom. <laughs> uh, sneaky pictures of people forget to take off the flash. We I totally more, do. We learn um, more about you every week, Craig. Yeah, I know. Can't, can't, can't keep anything from you. But anyway, so the flash goes off and this man, I don't remember his name or if he had one, but he kind of freaks out. And you kind of see a change in his eyes and a change in his visage. And he runs up to Chris and screams at him, get out. And he's, he grabs him and starts shaking him. And he's like, get out of here, run, run away. And of course they hurry that man away inside. And the next thing we see is him coming out of Missy's office with her. And she's like, oh, he's better now. He's got a touch of the epilepsy and the flash uh, caused a seizure, but he's all better now. And um, he's back. This guy is back to acting the way he was before and they leave. And that's when Chris says, or no, excuse me, Rose says, we're going to take a walk. And they go off uh, and take a walk together. And and Chris wants to go. He's like, I want to get out of here. And she's like, and just leave me here. And he's like, well, that's up to you. But then he says, you know, I love you. If you want to stay, I'm going to stay here with you. But she's like, no, it's fine. We can go. Um, and, and another thing. The reason the suspense was so high for me is because at this point, you can it's so obvious. There's no question in your mind that there's something shady going on with the parents. But you wonder if Rose is in on it. Yeah. Because she really seems like a loving, doting girlfriend. I mean, she's sweet and nice, and it really seems like they have a real connection. At, um, at this point, though, I, I wrote down, the girl is in on it. <laughs> Because well, she would clicked, have to be. It clicked with me that she would have to be. There's no way she couldn't be. And and that's the point in which it did click with me. As soon as I that possibility entered my head, I noticed a little bit about this conversation and how she was 
slightly a little manipulative here in giving in to him at just the right moments and making suggestions at just the right moments. Um, it's very, um, it became, it, calculated. it was, yeah, it was very calculated. It seemed, and then I thought, oh my God, she's done this before. <laughs> that was the second thought that, that came into my head at that moment because I, she felt, she seemed so practiced at it. Well, and if that's the case, she's really good at it. She is. <laughs> like, she's amazingly good at it. She had, she has him fooled. She had me fooled. Um, I, I guess that's, you know. Good job, Allison Williams. You did a good job. Um, <laughs> eventually, of course, we do find out that she's in on it, and that's coming up very soon. But um, and then her entire demeanor changes. Oh yeah, and she honestly like turns out to be the worst character. And, oh. Like she's so cold and calculated. Oh, yeah. And going in, I didn't really like her because I, I'm a huge fan of girls, and she played Marnie and girls, and Marnie is like the worst character. So it just like <laughs> I had a bias. But my bias was confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she once it's revealed that she's in on it, which again is coming up very soon. Her entire character changes, and uh, Jordan Peele coached her and said, "I want you to think of this as two completely different characters. I want Rose to be." truly a loving supportive girlfriend and then when it switches i want you to think of yourself as roro and she's a totally different girl and she is cold and and calculated and and uh i thought she it was great it was a great shift in character it was yeah and it kind of plays into uh, everyone's fear in a way but maybe even more so you know in this particular situation of an interracial couple and this tension that's going to naturally be there and the fears that he's going to naturally have about his acceptance into this family that somebody's putting on two faces you know they're going to be one way in front of you but then behind their back with their kind right or their family you know it's they're only four months in you know, um, yeah, yeah. Th- that they're treating yeah. or speaking about you differently, or they're kind of a different person, and you don't know this yet. Again, it plays into that kind of fear as well. Sure, absolutely. Well, that's a good observation, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> don't flatter him. Oh, uh, keep going, Jordan. <laughs> We're gonna have him on every week. <laughs> well, things from this point happen very quickly uh chris sends rod the picture that he took uh of the guy and rod calls him back immediately that's drake drake andre hayworth used to kick it with veronica veronica from what Teresa's sister that worked at the movie theater on eighth yes that is him is him but wait 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 wait. this is so crazy yo he's different no shit why is he dressed like that it's not that it's everything he came to the party with a white woman like 30 years old now. Sex slave! Oh, shit! Chris, you gotta get the fuck up out of there, man. You in some eye-wide shut situation? Leave, motherfucker! Uh, <laughs> and and it, at this point, uh, Chris kind of <laughs> thinks that might be the case. Yeah. Um, so so he tells Rose, we've got to get out of here. He doesn't explain why, so we gotta get out of here. And she's like, okay, I'll go get my bag. And while she's doing that, conveniently, there's this little cubby in her room that's open. And for unknown reasons, he decides he needs to investigate it. And he goes over there and he looks in and he pulls out this red box. And I guess anybody would do that. But, like, you're not going to find something good in there. (laughs) (laughs) You find somebody's secret red box. Just maybe leave it. (laughs) But, But in this case, it's a good thing that he opened it because she had told him that he was the first black guy she had ever dated. And he finds in this box these pictures. And at first they seem very normal, just, you know, pictures of her with her friends. But then he comes to a series of pictures of her with a whole series of black guys. And the last one. One with uh, Georgina. Yeah, with Georgiana looking very modern and fun. And so he knows something's up, but but he she comes back and and he's like, let's go. And they run downstairs. That scene, though, like if you're seeing that. How do you not know something's up? Like, how do you still want to get in the car with her? Like, True. seriously, get out. <laughs> but, but the problem is, is he can't drive. Remember, oh, I don't know. Earlier with the cop, um, he didn't have a license. Uh, oh, that's right. He had his license, didn't no, he? No, it was a state ID. It wasn't oh. a license. Yeah, so he and she's got the keys to the car, so she needs the keys, and he, you know. Even with the keys, he's not going to be very helpful in this situation. True. So they go downstairs, and everybody's left except the family is still there, and they're all standing around kind of ominously, and they're kind of like, what are you doing? Where are you going? And he's and trying to get— up against the door with a lacrosse. lacrosse. 
stick. Yeah. Stick, he's, yeah. he's been, he was creepy from the beginning. He, he keeps asking her, he's like, come on, where are the keys? Where are the keys? Meanwhile, Bradley Whitford goes off into some weird monologue about how we're all humans, but we're also gods. Like, I really didn't even understand what he was talking no. about. <laughs> that, was a, that scene was all a bit contrived right there, along with, you know, getting the, the, the box, finding the box at just the right moment. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And so uh, finally he says, Rose, where are the keys? And she pulls them out and she's like, you know, I can't let you leave. And so that's when, you know, everything's out in the open, except for why they're doing this. Um, he bolts. He bolts like he's going to just take off. And the mom just clinks her tea glass and he just falls flat. Yeah, like she just drops him by clinking the tea glass. And when he wakes up, he's strapped to this chair in a game room that we've never seen before. And there's this old, like 1950s console TV in front of him. And shortly after he wakes up, it comes on and it's like... It, it looks like a commercial for like a drug or something. Um, and I guess ultimately that's kind of what it is. It's kind of welcome to what we're going to do to you. <laughs> yeah. Like very obviously a medical commercial. Right. But it's the it's the grandpa, the supposedly dead grandpa, and he goes around and he's like, you know, we've been trying to develop this uh, system for years. It's the Cortana process, and finally we've perfected it, and now you get to be a part of it. And this stuff didn't make it into the movie, but... Uh, uh, Jordan Peele actually had a backstory for this whole group, not just this family, but the whole group of people, the party goers. They're like from this ancient group of knights. And it was the knights who were questing for the fountain or not the fountain of youth, excuse me, the Holy Grail. And these generations have continued to pursue immortality. And now they've finally done it. And oh, this wow. is how they're doing it. And uh, I'm glad he what, didn't include that because that's dumb. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little out of scope. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. a kind way of putting it. <laughs> um, but so he sees that and, and we see that Bradley Whitford and the wife and the kids, although they're little kids, are in the video. So obviously they've been a part doing of this, this for years and years and years. Once that video goes off, a video of the teacup, uh, comes back up and it clinks um, and he passes back out. During then he that wakes up video with the grandpa though. You can kind of like see that they're doing it like for like racist motives. Like it's like, they're not overtly racist, but like during the party when they're feeling him up and like treating him like cattle, like it's kind of like, okay, like that's odd. But then in the video, the grandpa's like, well, you've enjoyed like such physical advantages. And that kind of, I feel, I felt like that went back to when in the beginning, Dean was talking about how his dad lost to go to the Olympics um, against Jesse Owens. And mm -hmm. so like maybe his entire life, he just thought black people were stronger than he was. And so that's why they do this to black people, even though the one guy that was going to go into Chris's body was like, I, it's not because you're black. I just want eyesight. Right. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I think it's a pretty obvious commentary on uh, cultural appropriation. You know, these, these people, they don't like black people as they as are, rule, as they are, but they're in other ways envious. They're envious of their physique. You know, they're envious of their coolness. You know, athletic ability. Yeah. Their coolness. They say that uh, sadly, you know, that's part of the real world where often black people are denied privileges and advantages but white people are more than happy to appropriate their music and their clothing and style and all those cheer things. for them on a, uh, on a sports team yeah mm -hmm. right right so then the next thing is he had met a guy at the party that we didn't talk about who, who uh, is blind he's an art dealer he used to be an artist himself he's familiar with chris's work um, and he says that he admires it um, and he's the one who won him in the auction he pops up on the screen and and they can converse because there's a Intercom. Uh, an intercom, right. And uh, he says, this is part of your prep. First was, you know, the hypnosis. Now this is like mental prep. And basically what he explains is that they do brain trans, partial brain transplant. Why black people? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> people want to change. Some people want to be stronger, faster, cooler. 
black is in fashion. But don't, please don't let me in with that. You know, I could give a shit what, what color you are. No. What I want is deeper. I want your eye, man. I want those things you see through. And what he says, which to me is the most horrifying component of all of this, is that because part of your brain remains, you'll always be there, but you'll be inside. You'll be an observer. In the sunken place. Right. I'll be driving the car, and you'll just be a passenger, and there's nothing you'll be able to do about it. And that, to me, is the most nightmarish part of the whole thing. If you're going to do this to me, just freaking kill me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Don't imprison me in my body and my mind while I have to watch you go around acting a fool in my body. (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) 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 I'm glad you guys get so much uh, amusement at my expense. It's fun. Uh, (laughs) That's great. What am I thinking of? I'm thinking of... Y'all gonna make me act a fool up in here. Up in, up in, up in, oh god. Y'all gonna make me lose yeah. my cool. It's, it's always the highlight of the episode when Todd <laughs> sings, I swear to God. <laughs> um, yeah, like speaking of cultural appropriation and like jive <laughs> right? talk, like, <laughs> we have no Todd idea. rapping, you saying acting a fool. <laughs> Very poorly, oh come I on i'm, I'm just cool like that yeah <laughs> here, in, here in midwestern missouri you know so then and i when i say things happen really fast from this point on i mean it like it's boom 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 this time when he hears that message um he notices he's been scratching at the arm of the chair and he notices the filling coming out of it. And I did not put this together at all. I read this, but he saves himself by picking cotton. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> right? Wow. So we see, <laughs> we see the white blind guy getting prepped for surgery. And it's pretty graphic and gross. Like the dad is cutting off his scalp and then he saws through his scalp his skull. And so Jeremy, the gross son goes in to get Chris and Chris is still knocked out or at least so we think. And, uh, he, um, unstraps him. And then when he's prepping the IV, uh, Chris stands up behind him and hits him in the back of the head, like three times with a bati ball that would have killed him. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just get that out of the way right now. In my notes, I write. And so Chris kills Jeremy, but Jeremy pops up again later, which absolutely makes no sense because he would have been dead. (laughs) All this this is going on. Like Rod is going to the police and no one believes him. And (laughs) he calls Rose and she like, you see her face while she's talking and her face is completely blank and just like dead looking. But her, voice has so much emotion and she's like oh my gosh like i'm so worried about him like he just left and he took a cab and all this and rod knows she's lying but he can't get her on a recorder yeah because she flips the script on him and makes it seem like he's predatory like he's going after her or something yeah so the dad bradley whitford realizes that Jeremy's not coming back with Chris, so he goes out into the hall to look for him, at which point Chris attacks him with a mounted buck head. Great irony there. You know, this guy this guy that hates deer and wants them eradicated, he gets killed with this deer head. So Chris uh, runs upstairs. and Not after Bradley Whitford, like, crawls into the operating room and knocks over a candle that shouldn't be in an operating room because right? there's lights everywhere. <laughs> like, that was too convenient. Like, I get yeah. that you're trying to make it sinister, but why? Why are there candles? Yes, that's a very good point. <laughs> like, you well, don't exactly right. need the light. And and the fire doesn't really play any role. It's not like they're battling it out in the flames or whatever. I think it was just like, if he's going out, he's he's burning it to the ground. You know, like we're not just going to leave this for them to keep doing it. Even though it was an accident, I think that was kind of what you know the whole legacy is burning. But he goes upstairs and uh, Georgina sees him and she runs and takes off. He goes uh, like from the kitchen into the mom's study. On the table is a glass of tea. And so then they both eye the tea and they run for it at the same time. But then Chris sweeps it off of the table and it breaks. So then Catherine, he and Catherine Keener kind of like walk around each other a little bit, like, you know, two lions getting ready to brawl. And so then she goes at him with a letter opener 
and stabs him through the hand, but then he turns it around and stabs her in the eye. And then he tries to leave the house, and Jeremy pops up again somehow. Like, this guy has, like, bionic levels of stamina, apparently, because he's just been bludgeoned. Chris tries to leave the house, but then he gets in a chokehold by Jeremy, and so he can't leave the house. And then, so he opens the door, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy kicks it shut, he goes for the door again, and Jeremy kicks it shut again. And this kind of uh, reflects back to the conversation they had at the dinner table on the night that Chris got there. And Jeremy's being super weird. And he starts talking about MMA and how, like, Chris would be so good at jujitsu and stuff like that because of his genetic makeup. And he's talking about jujitsu and how it's all, in like, mental. It's not physical. And you always have to be three steps ahead. And so then on Chris's third try to open the door he knows Jeremy's going to go to kick it again and he does but then he stabs Jeremy in the leg and then curb stomps him to death yeah which I, and I'm I'm sitting there like yes just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> stomp that guy he's horrible so he runs out and he gets in the car meanwhile Rose is just sitting upstairs listening to the dirty dancing soundtrack on her headphones eating one fruit loop at a time uh, scouting for other black guys on the Sipping internet which is, is that what that was she was looking up the NAACC or not the NAACP NCAA <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I always mix them up. <laughs> in that shot, if you look behind her, all of the photos with her and her like victims are framed and hung up on the wall. Yeah. I know it's super spooky. She's it's, a psycho. Well, it's like yeah. a, it's like a stunted child. You know, she's she's like a never left that child that we see in the video uh, that was playing on the TV. Right? She's eating these Fruit Loops. Yeah, she's sitting crisscross applesauce. Yeah. And she looks like a child today would be, like, playing with her iPad. Yeah, absolutely. Like, separating the Fruit Loops from the milk thing. I watched an interview with Jordan Peele, and he was reading Reddit theories about the movie. And so one of them said that she's separating the whites from the coloreds. And so then Jordan Peele was like, uh, no, actually, it's just to show how, like, creepy and calculated and cold she is. But it's oh, still that's interesting funny. that, like, yeah. color Yeah, it's a good theory. <laughs> Whether it's true or it not. It fits. Yeah. yeah. Chris runs outside, and he's got the car keys, and he jumps in um, Jeremy's white car that was the abducting car from the beginning. And he uh, takes off, and Georgiana jumps in front of the car. And again, here it's that hit-and-run thing again. You know, he... He can't leave her. You know, he was so sad that his mother died cold and alone. And so, and he remembers a time when he, Georgiana, had been talking and a single tear had dropped from her eye. And she, he knows that she's in there somewhere. Um, and because of that, he feels compassion for her. And so well, he puts her in the car and they start he's driving away. telling himself not to get out of the car. And right. Like not to do it. Rose comes out on the car with a rifle and, and starts shooting at them. Which is Georgiana, like really reflective of what she said at the beginning of the film because she was talking to him about how her parents aren't going to freak out that he's black and like chase him out of the house with a, with a gun Shotgun. and then she's yeah. chasing him out of the house, with the gun. <laughs> yep. <course>. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And Georgiana wakes up and um, we see now that the reason that all of these characters had had hats and specific hairstyles was because they've got these big scars from their brain transplants. Yeah. <laughs> but she wakes up and she freaks out and she's like, you destroyed my house, you destroyed my family. And, and she starts beating on him. And so he crashes into a tree and she's dead and out of commission. When he comes back to consciousness, seemingly very quickly. He gets out and Rose is right behind him, shooting at him. He takes off running. And then here comes Grandpa, the big black groundskeeper, comes running by and she just says, get him, Grandpa. And uh, Grandpa takes him down and it looks like it's the end for Chris, but then he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out his camera and he flashes it in Grandpa's eyes. And we see that change like we had seen before. And it, it's good acting or good direction because you can see an immediate change of character. In the same interview, with Jordan Peele he was talking about how in that scene when grandpa catches him he was gonna like get him to the ground and then the grandpa would be like I finally got you Jesse (laughs) (laughs) but then Jordan Peele was like that's a little much (laughs) you know it just hit me the the foreshadowing of of the earlier conversation with the dad when the dad said you you probably think it's really weird I I get it it's really weird that I have these black servants we hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. 
When they died, I just, I, I couldn't bear to let them go. Sure enough, all these years they've continued to, quote-unquote, take care of them. Yep, yep. <laughs> it falls together really nicely. It I really mean, does. <laughs> is, is it plausible? No, but no. <laughs> it's fun, and it's, it's, it's a well-crafted story. Um, but anyway, so uh, Grandpa changes, at least momentarily, and he turns to Rose, and he's like, let me do it. And so she hands him the rifle, but he turns it on her and sh- shoots her in the abdomen, and then he puts the barrel under his chin and kills himself. Rose, meanwhile, is still alive, and she's crawling towards the rifle, but Chris gets to it first and throws it away from her. First, she starts trying to talk nice to him, like, "Uh, I love you, you know, like she's acting again, which he would have to be really, really stupid to fall for that at this point. Yeah, no Um, kidding. He starts, he's he's choking her like he's going to kill her. But again, I think it's just his compassion won't allow him to do that. And so he eases up and uh, she smiles like, ha ha, uh, I got you or whatever. And then the cop car shows up and these red and blue lights are flashing. And I, the, my first thought in the theater was, oh, no, yeah. this is not going to look good for him. <laughs> the house yeah. is burning down. All the evidence is going to be gone. It's going to be her word against his. And we see how our Justice Department works. And that's... Uh, I, I thought things were not going to go well. But who steps yeah. out of the car? Rod. TSA. TSA. <laughs> TSA. <laughs> so they get in the car together and Rod just says, I mean, I told you not to go into that house. <laughs> <laughs> and they basically drive away and leave her there to die. And, but and then Chris is like, how did you find me? He's like, I'm TSA. We handle shit. (laughs) (laughs) And then they drive off. Oh, it's so funny. They they filmed an alternate ending where, in fact, it was the real cops who showed up. Chris wasn't shot, but he was taken to jail. And Rod could not give them any hard evidence uh, to help Chris's case. And it was just implied that he would probably spend the rest of his life in jail. But Peel said that um, in the climate when the movie was released, he felt like the audience deserved a happier ending than that and so that's why they went with the ending that they went with and i really like the ending Uh, i'm glad that uh you know he went through a lot of stuff but he came out of it hopefully things will be okay overall i think it's a really well-made movie especially now again like i said it's he's been working in the industry for a long time but for this being his directorial debut um really really strong and uh you know there was there's some buzz about um you know, Oscars and stuff. I, I know that it was nominated for like best musical or comedy at the Golden Globes or something what? like that, which, yeah, I have no I idea. Was, this is not a comedy. Yeah, they definitely classified it as a comedy. <clears throat> and I guess maybe what? they were afraid they wouldn't they be able would. to get it. America would classify like the trials and tribulations that like black people face as like comedic. Well, see, I, I, I don't even really, I know what you're saying and I agree with you, but I, I think that ultimately that's, a decision that the filmmakers make how they want to submit it. And my guess would be that they thought they didn't have a slim chance in hell of getting a best picture nod. So maybe they thought they would go for something that they might have a better chance. I don't know. Well, Um, certainly not as a horror movie. I mean, how often do horror movies get serious consideration at the Oscars for anything? Hardly ever. The one thing he did do strategically was put some serious Microsoft product placement in this film. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Oh my God. (laughs) Who who goes and bings things? <laughs> yeah. Everybody in this movie is whipping out their Surface tablet, binging things that they want to ask questions about. Like, really? Come on. <laughs> That's fine. I didn't yeah. even notice. That's Unreal. hilarious. All in all, I thought it was really good. But I'm like both satisfied and dissatisfied with the ending. I'm satisfied because like it is a happy ending, and we end with Rod, and he's just like, "This is handled," and like it's very funny, and it like ends on like a lighter note. But at the same time, there's so many loose strings. Like, what happened to Andre Hayworth? Aren't you guys going to go save him? You know, how many people have they done this to? Is there ever going to be justice? You know, obviously, if people show up to a house where people are dead in the driveway and the house is completely burned down, like, there's going to be questions. So I, it just leaves so many unanswered questions that that's why I feel a little bit dissatisfied. Get out. Sure, that's fair. Well, he's thinking about a sequel. Now, I kind of feel like this is one of those movies that you should really just kind of let it alone, yeah. you know. Yeah, uh, but, it should definitely be a standalone. 
But you never know. He's a smart guy, and if he comes up with a good story, I would certainly give it a chance. Well, you know, this was a good movie. I mean, this order still exists, right? All those people who are at that party went away. Maybe there's somebody else in there who can do the operation, too, or maybe they have the knowledge, you know, somewhere else. Surely they wouldn't be so stupid as to, you know, centralize all the knowledge in the head of one guy and all of the materials they need to do it in one location in case something happens, you know? Yeah, yeah. sure. Overall, I mean, I think it was a pretty strong effort, and uh, it was fun talking to you guys about it. Oh, it was. I loved this movie. I'm so glad I finally got to see it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Uh, if you liked this episode, let us know. If you uh, have any other theories that we didn't talk about or things that you wanted to point out that maybe we missed, you can fill us in on something. Uh, please feel free to leave comments on our Facebook page. Um, you can find us there on Facebook or you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, pretty much anywhere you can find your favorite podcast. You can find us there. Until next time, I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. I'm Jordan. We're with Two Guys in a Chainsaw.